Welcome to Tillin Tales. This podcast meanders through storytelling and science with a background harp accompaniment. I'm your host, Sophia Matson. I act as a shop, an old English word spelled S-C-O-P, but pronounced like retail shop. On Tillin Tales, science and creativity are methods I combine to enchant those who look for more within the everyday realm we experience. As a harpist, I arrange my music to draw the listener in, but if you find yourself getting lost in the melody, that's quite alright. You can always rewind to catch up on what you missed, or you can just let it pass with time. I produce these episodes out of my passion for research and writing, but regardless, it's a lot of work. So, if you enjoy my episodes, if they bring you peace or enlightenment or a laugh for whatever reason, please consider compensating me with the price of an oat milk cappuccino every month on my Patreon at patreon.com slash And if you're not able to give, I would be eternally grateful if you'd leave a review or rate the podcast or kindly share the link to my episode with friends and family who might also enjoy today's episode. And don't hesitate to email my email to lintails at gmail.com. Thanks. By the time I have released this episode, it will be the full snow moon. Some of you may enjoy the time of the year for the supermoons, when the moon is closest in proximity to the Earth, and it appears very large. Well, this snow moon is a micro-moon. On February 6th of 1971, astronaut Alan Shepard could not wait any longer to hit a golf ball 200 yards across the snow moon's surface. And you've got to be kidding me for how much research I do on environmental topics when there's a random golf fact on the website. This happens all the time, and I would recommend listening to my episode on the social and environmental impact of golfing on golf courses. Uh, Golf has even tainted the snow moon's surface now that I know that. I can never go back. Those little white balls that resemble the micro-moon and its gravitational pull on human nature. If this moon rested upon the rubber band of a slingshot, the snow moon would be pulled as far back with as much icy tension as possible. The Cherokee fittingly named this micro-moon the Hungry Moon, or the Month of the Bony Moon, considering it's the toughest time of the year to find food in the wilderness. This small, hungry snow moon is also considered the bear moon for the Ojibwe and the black bear moon for the Tlingit peoples. Bear cubs are being born out of hibernation, and soon they will rely on more than just mother's milk. Mama bear is starving and hyperprotective of her cubs during this hungry moon. Luckily, winter is starting to release its death grip from the northern hemisphere. As the water temperatures rise to a more consistent 34 degrees Fahrenheit, Salmon and trout begin to make their journey through the rivers. So the Cree deemed this moon to be the bald eagle moon. And it doesn't stop there, for you mustn't forget about all the hungry little critters that begin to come out. The Dakota call this the raccoon moon. And if you were wondering about Groundhog Day being celebrated in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania in February, this snow moon is also the groundhog moon for Algonquin peoples. And if you're not familiar with this holiday, the people of Punxsutawney wait for their groundhog named Punxsutawney Phil to come out of its burrow and then check its shadow. Because if the groundhog sees its shadow, it means we're going to experience six more weeks of winter. And if not, it means we're going to have an early spring. 
And what this really comes from is a bunch of old European traditions using animals to predict the upcoming spring. The Pennsylvania Dutch people were German immigrants who based the ceremony on the badgers they used to predict spring in Germany. So if the badger sunbathes for the day and experiences his shadow, then returns to the hole, it means another month of winter. So he came out to just enjoy the weather for a second while it's nice, but knows it's going to still be bad and goes back into his hole. But if not, he stays out, it's early spring. Celtic people celebrated a similar holiday for St. Bridget's Day, where, you know, she's the pagan goddess Bridget, who turned into a Catholic saint. But in Scotland, they look for a snake for a sign of spring, and in Ireland, it's a hedgehog. Looking towards animals to tell the weather is ancient knowledge that casts a certain shadow for humanity. The shadow that we have placed ourselves in, the shadow of nature, not truly belonging to the wilderness ourselves, we rely on other living species to tell us how to operate in this world. And since antiquity, the West has worked hard to escape this reliance upon other creatures, this reliance upon the natural world. We have decided to no longer live in the shadow of other creatures' supernatural talents, but in our own Anthropocene. To see the moon's shadow to predict our own phases of behavior in astrology is like observing Groundhog Day. It's a silly tradition that hardly relates to modern science and fact. But now, more than ever, we're having an identity crisis, a climate crisis, a feeling of isolation and rejection. The light of science just shows the darkness we have created. And we can't bring ourselves to lose our ego to shadow the real natural tendencies of animals again for the greater good. We don't follow birds anymore to forage berries, my friends. But like the groundhog, we have evolved to interpret shadows to enhance our perception of the natural environment. When we look at an object, the first thing that happens in our eyes is processing edges, motion, and color before we interpret anything else. Also, we assume light comes from one direction, and specifically, we're biased to perceive light as coming from above. We hardly look at a scene and assume the light is coming from below. Have you ever seen someone put a flashlight beneath their face? It's an effective way to enhance your scary storytelling because it signals to our brains that something in our environment is strange. Our faces are not naturally lit from below. However, now with phones, the screen light casts shadows on our face that turns our, our faces into zombie gremlins of the dark. When you combine the assumption of light coming from above to shading circles, Shading the bottom of a circle creates a convex sphere that pops out at the viewer with ease. On the other hand, if you shadow the top of a circle, it creates an illusion of a concave hole, a cavity. When a circular cavity is placed next to a sphere, the mind gravitates more readily towards the sphere than the cavity. It pops out at your eyes. Shadow allows us to assume three-dimensionality which is specific to our earthly environment. If we evolved on a planet without solid objects casting shadows from above, we may not recognize objects as convex 3D objects. And all this goes to say that when there is a shadow, we assume there's also a tangible object with it, as long as the light is coming from above, like the sun. Like a flashlight beneath the face adding a creepy vibe to a storyteller, 
Cavities that prevent light coming in from above do not ease the mind. Per Plato's allegory of the cave, we made it out of the caves where we only knew two-dimensional shadows as our reality. Forcing ourselves into those claustrophobic spaces brings anxiety and hinders ingenuity. But coming out into the wilderness to experience shadow cast from sunlight brought its own anxieties too. For ages, humans walking in exile longed for settlement, shelter, and safety. Since the existence of our nomadic tribes, such as the Germanic Goths, who originated from 3rd century Scandinavia and migrated southeast, we've been looking to escape the unknown wilderness. Tales like the Germanic hero Beowulf glorified the slaying of wild, monstrous beasts and dragons of the untamed landscape to safely drink their mead and spread their seed in their torchlit hall. And these tales were told by a shop like me, with a harp or other such instrument. Beowulf's tribe was the Geats, but the Goths, in particular, built these castles and cathedrals reminiscent of the cave. Cavernous, even jagged halls that perfectly echoed Catholic chant of Salve Regina, post hoc exilium. This means all will be resolved after this exile. The Goths were not originally Roman Catholic. Like I said, they migrated from Eastern Nordic regions. On their way down, the runic inscriptions and architecture were found in places like Romania and Hungary. And they lived a life of exile until their kings gathered more men to conquer more land, and eventually, they stripped Greece and Rome of their classical culture, valuing art and education. They built their Gothic cathedrals and wrought havoc. They settled in France, Italy, and Iberia, and Spain kind of region. Through a couple centuries, the Goths assimilated from their ancient pagan religions of worshipping the god of war to being Roman Catholics. And you might be thinking, how could people who worshipped a god of war become Catholic? In Christianity, there's this grounding that we all live in exile. It is gloomy. It is dreary. But when the Savior was born, everyone chases his light like a moth to a flame, knowing you could never be that light, but you could at least be the Lord's shadow. Surrender to God. Try to make a Christ-like shape in every movement and find God's glory beneath every experience. To fight for Christ, to kill in the name of Christ when it was threatened, was acceptable because he was the new Gothic king. And just like the old Scandinavian pagan god of war, dying for your king was the way to resolve your soul. Only in death, there is peace. All will be resolved after this exile. Post hoc exilium. We are seeking peace from our nomadic lives of the wilderness. Only in becoming one with the earth, allowing the mycelial network or mushroom network to absorb our bodies and use our cells as information and nutrients to sustain more life, do we find absolution. Absolution is melting into depths of shadow. This chant post hoc exilium sounds like, when you hear it done classically, it sounds like the hum of insects before a summer thunderstorm and mushrooms respond to the deep bass sound of thunderstorms. Belonging to wilderness is akin to accepting death. 
The word wild carries the English root will or having a mind of its own, being uncontrollable. But not everyone felt like they needed to go to war to resolve their life and death. Fatalism and faith was common among the Peregrini or religious wanderers of the Catholic faith. I'm reading this book called The Wild Places by Robert McFarlane, who is an English author who decided to live like a nomad and search for the last remaining wild places of Great Britain. And McFarlane talks a lot about these Peregrini who, instead of forever trying to escape the wilderness in their lifetime, embraced the wilderness as the beauty of God. I've been to a tiny island off of Ireland called Skellig Michael, where the early Christian monks built oratories and huts to meditate upon the wildness of this place. And when you make it across the choppy water, you hop onto the slippery rocks of Skellig Michael and proceed to climb the steep stone steps among the little puffin caves to the top. And I don't think I've ever experienced anything like it, and I never will experience anything like it. And it always rains there, so the day we went, we were just lucky that it was sunny and it rained when we left. Anyways, in the third chapter called Valley, McFarlane discusses the Irish saga of Billy Sweeney, which translates to Sweeney Peregrine. Sweeney was an ancient Irish king of Ulster who insulted a Christian priest and then was cursed to be a creature of the air, like a peregrine falcon or like a ghost to never mingle among humans and seek the most remote of places. However, Sweeney grew fond of this lifestyle, and McFarland became fixated on one location Sweeney had ventured to, a lost valley called Bilkang. However, unable to find the modern-day lost valley of Bilkang, McFarland reminisces on a similar lost, strange, and alluring valley, Karushk. McFarlane writes, Karushk is an anglicization of the Gaelic Koreushk, which means the cauldron of the waters, and its isolation is legendary. On three sides of Karushk are mountains, and on the fourth is a deep inlet of the Atlantic, Loch Skevag, or something like that. That's not quoted, not, I mean... I'm trying to do a lot of Gaelic words, you guys, so just hang in there. Lockskavag. Okay, starting the quote again. The mountains are the Black Cullen, the most austere and gothic of all Britain's ranges. They are the roots of ancient volcanoes 55 million years old, which have eroded down into six-mile battlement of smashed basalt and gabbro. End quote. McFarland then begins to describe the difficult journey one must take to enter the valley, where the light behaves unexpectedly and the weather acts separately from the outside world. As it turns out, during the Victorian era amidst the 1800s, artists were obsessed with this valley. They came from far and wide to experience the strange valley, and for architecture, this was the era of the Gothic Revival. People in the Victorian era welcomed back the dark, medieval architecture of the Goths that grew out of fashion. In the Victorian era, the word Gothic was synonymous with barbaric, but the Victorians grew tired of the classic revival. One artist, Walter Scott, in 1814 described Karushk as dark, brooding, 
wild, weird, and stern. I was reminded of the ballet Giselle. One decade before 1800, the French Revolution ended, which brought many changes to art and ballet. It was a war of commoners against the greedy government. Like I said, classics were out. People did not want any more ballets about the gods and goddesses and the kings who had everything they could ever want. They preferred the stories of the people. Stories like Ballet of the Nuns, where the nuns rose from their graves to dance in the moonlight. Saintly, humble figures dancing over their graves. A romanticization of righteous death. People were enthralled with this short ballet, but also because of the new technology of gaslighting, which is not the way that we use that term now, but it's a technology that kind of creates foggy effects on the theater, on the stage, right? So the ballet Giselle was based off of the ballet of the nuns. Giselle was a woman who died before her wedding day and was buried in a forest cemetery. When her husband comes back in the moonlight to grieve, the heartbroken and betrayed ghost maidens of the cemetery are awakened to exact revenge on any man that comes through the gravesite at night. And the spirits attempt to dance him to death and drown him in a lake. But Giselle's love was powerful enough to save him from the grave. These vengeful ghost maidens were based on another tale that depicts them as vampires instead of ghosts. The late 1700s through the 1800s was the time of Gothic literature. New technology and industrialism on the rise made the imagination of Frankenstein's monster possible for Mary Shelley. Edgar Allan Poe is the pinnacle of goth to me, and even based a character off the man who inspired the fictional Jean Valjean from Les Mis, Les Miserables, which, you know, that's a story that cried the woes of the French Revolution, right? So Bram Stoker's Dracula lived in one of those Romanian goth castles that echoes perfectly when chanting post hoc exilium. And then over in America during this time, especially on the western frontier, people were experiencing the life of exile once again. They were facing the wilderness. Brought from Europe was the fear of rabies from bats. And rabies, a disease that made regular unpredictable wild animals into monstrous demons, was the inspiration for the vampire Dracula. And more than just literature and imagination, an American businessman named P.T. Barnum brought everything people could only imagine from stories they were told to their small settler towns. He found people and animals that transcended imagination. And I am not glorifying this, it's awful. P.T. Barnum made a living by trading animals and humans that were unusual to the normative Western gaze and then put them on display. That repulsive creep show invented the circus and the aquarium. He hunted whales, stole elephants, and coaxed people with odd talent or physical features into indentured servitude and enslavement. For a price, you could look and possibly even touch exotic animals and people with various bodily deformities. Eventually, Barnum partnered with an Englishman named James Bailey to extend his circus freak show across Europe. So from English Victorian artists in Karouche to the French ballet Giselle, 
to the Gothic architecture revival, to the rabies-inspired Dracula that held both Europeans and Americans in its fangs, to the romance of death, the untamed glory of exile, and the theatrics of freak shows. All of this somehow inspired goth culture to come back in full swing in the 1980s. And this past February, I was invited to a goth prom at a bar called Mad Planet in Milwaukee. This event was supposed to be sort of Valentine's Day event, but for the goths who prefer romance to be paired with tragedy and a red and black outfit. And because I don't often dress up in a goth-like fashion, nor did I completely understand the roots of goth culture, I decided to pour my research into it before I accidentally look like Elle Woods in her pink Playboy Bunny outfit attending what she thought was a costume party. And spoiler alert, it was not a costume party. But that's what the first half of this podcast was. What is goth? Even though I revolt at the smell of Halloween store plastic and pleather, and I hate fake blood, and I hate plastic fangs, I decided to look at recent goth subcultures for inspiration too. And you might be thinking, none of those goths look very friendly, Sophia. You said goth meant barbaric. Well, my Talintales friends, as it turns out, people who think about death are shown to be more empathetic and are also more likely to donate blood. <laughs> I believe this episode may bring you empathy towards the goths and the way they choose to exist. If you are goth, I believe this may have already informed you on how to be an expert goth, more than a trad goth, a true goth. And by the end, I hope whoever is listening realizes they are never alone in their sorrows, and that we all walk in exile, and that isolating people who wear their sorrows is not a very productive way towards making the world more tolerable. But like I said, I personally am repulsed by Halloween stores and fake blood, and the smell of plastic and pleather, and gory imagery. I was never able to stomach it, and in college I took this class called Monsters, on monster theory and horror and freak shows and serial killers, etc. I've always been a fan of psychological thrillers and ghost stories, but I still can't watch the violent baby from Family Guy kill someone. Most people do watch these things without any issue. Enjoying horror is not synonymous with being goth, but it is what sparked the cultural revival in the 1980s. So to answer the question before, asking, how did all that 1800s literature and culture and way of feeling find its way back into the psyche of the 1980s England and the United States? Horror, as a genre, took off in the 1980s. For the first time since the invention of film, video cassettes like VHS were adapted in the mid-1970s, so people were watching movies in the privacy of their own home. This fed a sort of dark cavity of desire for most everybody. CGI special effects improved, and murder scenes looked way more realistic. Horror was explicit in more than just gore, but sex too. The 1980s are notorious for monetizing the male gaze, but more than that, the male gaze was society's gaze. What society paid attention to and paid money towards. Something hated and loved, disgusting and intriguing. These intense experiences are addicting to the brain, no matter what you think about them. Further, 
our brain attaches itself readily to fearful stimuli. Our brains cannot possibly pay attention to anything else when we are provoked. This revolution of horror captured everybody's attention and it did not let it go. Horror reveals things in the shadows, things on the edge, and contradictions. Scavenger animals, basements and attics, creatures under bridges, creatures beneath the water, ghosts in a window, people lacking emotion or social reasoning, the knowledge of death without knowing how, when, who, what, or why. Horror films did the same thing as P.T. Barnum propping up exaggerated stereotypes and deformities in a lit-up box. From a translucent roll of tape illuminated in a much smaller box, horror movies took stereotypes and exaggerated them to take advantage of people's deepest and darkest sensitivities and fetishes. Along with monsters and murderers, explicit nudity and sex scenes were added to movies. Because that is always the question. Do monsters have sex? And how? Bram Stoker's Dracula, which played on the fear of rabies of the 1800s, was newly adopted in 1979 to play on the fear of the AIDS epidemic. Dracula was a sexually promiscuous character and did not have a preference for gender when he got thirsty for blood. For queer people, being brought from the shadows into the light, everyone couldn't help but wonder how things worked, and when AIDS hit, People were quick to demonize gay people and justify their demise under the premise that they were monstrous to society. The first music album considered gothic was by The Doors. When music critic John Stickney hung out with the lead singer for The Doors, Jim Morrison, to listen to the new album in the dimly lit wine cellar in 1967. And it was this setting, this vampire chamber of a setting, that Stickney declared matched the vibe of gothic rock. In the 80s, the music coming out was inspired similarly to the horror films. The lyrics tell foreboding, weird, forbidden stories with a droning melancholic melody and distorted guitar. And by the time the 1980s rolled around, rock music was all about emulating that exact vibe. The artists pushed it further with their fashion, It was all about looking like Frankenstein and Dracula had a mutual friend from the freak show of the underworld. All the black, leather lace-up boots, spikes, ghastly makeup contrasting white face powder with dark eye makeup, and the hair that looked like it was struck by lightning. In London, a nightclub called the Bat Cave, known for its coffin, spiderweb, and bat decorations, opened every Wednesday night. Gloomy misfits of the daytime transformed into a frenzy of nocturnal creatures, eventually forming the first goth subculture, Batcave Goth. Alien sex fiend, specimen, and sex gang children are some bands that are Batcave Goth bands. And you don't have to listen to these artists to know what societal fears are being conjured by their names. On the west coast of America, a similar approach to music that stemmed from California's punk scene created the American goth subculture death rock. Often, American gothic rock focuses on the topic of Christianity, such as the band Christian Death. You can imagine the good American Christians living the dream of the 1980s, really freaking out at that name. And around the same time, in 1980, 
This Canadian psychiatrist published a book with his patient, who later became his wife, (laughs) Michelle Smith. The book, called Michelle Remembers, is about using recovered memory therapy with Michelle to uncover her lost memory of being abused in satanic rituals. So Michelle sat down with her psychiatrist and wrote this book of her recovering her lost memory of being abused in satanic rituals and then later they got married and they made money off of this book. But anyways, a nationally widespread rumor that secret satanic cults were popping up to abduct women and children to perform satanic sexual rituals or sacrifices and then wipe their victims' memory with the devil's power was going on. So imagine, you have a devout Christian nuclear family and you're terrified because you've heard there's this band called Christian Death and those no-good kids smoking cigarettes and drinking booze are blasting it from their Chevy around the suburb and you heard about the gay people in the city with a vampire disease? Well, there's a satanic panic going on. So people were freaking out, especially the people who did not understand horror films or rock music critically. They just noticed this trend of people starting to look like creepy death characters everywhere and then started associating them with this rumor of satanic cults that kidnapped and raped and murdered children. And it didn't help when the media blew up stories of real serial killers who preyed upon young boys, either. Marginalized communities were suffering from these portrayals and rumors. People saw symbols of what they deemed satanic everywhere. And psychiatrists and social workers were readily hired to assess children for abuse by suspicious and fearful parents. And they used recovered memory therapy. It became popular for adult women, too, who suspected their suffering mental health was caused by suppressed memories of abuse. Another book was published for such women in 1988. It's called The Courage to Heal by a poet named Ellen Bass. And it was a self-help book for adult women with suffering mental health to heal by recovering memories of their past sexual abuse. And here's the thing. To this day, therapists will claim your behaviors are caused by past trauma, and a part of therapy is discussing your memory, right? It's true that when a person is raped, they might black out or temporarily lose their memory from it in order to move on. However, this case, this 1980s case, is no such case. Recovered memory therapy is when a therapist goes in assuming the patient's current mental illness stems from forgotten sexual abuse and then tries to coax the patient into admitting that they've been raped. So these memories aren't real shadows that inform our experience. They were cast by the hands of the therapist. A psychological researcher named Elizabeth Loftus found that the techniques used in recovered memory therapy are actually effective at forming new false memories. They had successfully convinced children to imagine someone they know touching them inappropriately to the point where it felt real. These children's parents were like, trust the therapist, Johnny and Susie. Answer all their questions so we can keep you safe. And children especially want to impress and please the adults around them, which resulted in hundreds of children falsely admitting that they were abused with some kind of satanic cult at the time. 
and the FBI has since found no evidence of ritual satanic sexual abuse cults. Trust me, there was a lot of search done by the FBI for that. But back then, parents in the 1980s and 90s were convinced that their children were being abused, not by members of the church or family members as we now understand, but rather the people who expressed themselves differently than the normal Christians of the time. The predators were the people who listened to music with distorted guitar and bass, or who wrote existential poetry about exile from God, and were all black and red. The satanic panic was in full swing. Terrified parents believed goth music and fashion encouraged human and animal sacrifice, ungodly sex, and murder. <laughs> I like how sex and murder always combined. But the kids were not buying it. Stepping into the 1990s, a new goth subculture swept through the West. Romantic goth. It was a feeling of darkness and otherness that many people felt like they belonged to. It was kids who naturally defied their parents to listen to this music and watch these films, and then found them to be relatable. Finding these artists who expressed their true feelings about life and death and God's love and God's hate and sex inspired the youngins with uptight, helicopter, abusive parents. In 1991, the Adams Family movie was readapted and released, and this style was more subdued, more, more ghostly rather than ghastly, but still kind of a freak show. People were getting desensitized to horror and began to embrace darkness as a sort of normativity, satirizing the mundane nuclear family with imperfect, gloomy characters felt right after all this panic. Instead of making a whole commotion of lightning-struck hairdos and loud makeup, they wore the feeling of goth closer to their natural, sickly bodies. And when I think of the 1990s, I think of eating disorders. Skinny, frail, pale bodies and limp hair. Young women who sadly wish to be ghosts. And some studies have indicated a correlation between goth fashion and eating disorders. Going into the 2000s, the accessible computer, social media, and fashion consumerism exacerbated these problems. But some of the goth subcultures intertwined with punk and metal, like cybergoth, showing neon accents against the black, or riot goth, revolving around feminism and women's depression and self-harm, or goth shock rock, like Marilyn Manson playing off Hollywood theatrics and cult-leading serial killers. People were rebelling like the French Revolution once again. Society craved songs of the people. Music that spoke against police brutality. Music that spoke against church corruption. Music that spoke against the new plague of the internet. And music that comforted people living in the shadows with the thought of death. From Marilyn Manson's song, In the Valley of the Shadow of Death, he sings, Death, it is policeman. Death, it is the priest. Death is the stereo. Death is TV. Death is the tarot. Death is an angel. Death is our God killing us all. Now, many of us are influenced by an emptier goth subtype directly from our culture of consumerism. Mall goth. Hot Topic is a mall goth store. 
It's where poser goths can display some type of gothic aesthetic and be all punk on the outside while never reading true gothic literature. It's where I got my Alice Cullen choker in fifth grade based on the vampire sister from Twilight. I looked up the origin of Volturi, by the way, which is the ancient vampire clan that rules over all the vampires in the Twilight Saga, and turns out their lore includes decimating Greece and taking over Rome, just like the ancient Goths who built their Dracula cathedrals. Anyway, Hot Topic is where young teens who are weirder than the normal groups of middle school and high school went to shop in the mall, and they don't really know why the goth aesthetic is the way it is. It's just how to claim individuality and otherness. And lately, I've seen an Instagram reel on what people are calling corporate goth. This lady, dressed up in her revamped 2024 mall goth outfit with tall black boots and chic edgy hair and eyeliner and an all black outfit that technically meets the standards of corporate. And in the video, She mentions that she gets looks all day, and then she goes and cries in the bathroom about it. And well, I understand if most of you, like me, hear that and think, well, what did you expect looking like that in a corporate business office? And then I think, maybe it's not as hypocritical as I thought to dress up goth while working for a corporation at the same time. There is this hopelessness this caging in our society where working for corporate offices in many ways the simplest path for financial stability, but it kills individuality. Even with cultural diversity training or neurodiversity training or a foosball table and beanbags in the office, working there for the rest of your life molds you into the same little functioning cog as everyone else. And if you refuse to look or act like anyone else, You simply won't fit in, and then you simply won't be happy, and then you'll simply be crying in the bathroom. An act of rebellion is never easy, though, and what most people don't realize is that for hundreds of years, Western society has been working hard to achieve this lifestyle. We came out of our caves to experience the awe of the wilderness, but then we're faced with the harshness of living a full spontaneous life among the elements and ever since we have felt like we were wandering in exile so we created industries and office buildings to shut ourselves away and now we face horror from natural disasters from rejecting our place among the trees and the valleys and we flock to our phones like moths to a flame and the main thing we feel we can actually do to save the planet is talk about it everyone's having an identity crisis. What am I made for? All these goths, all these new kids with their colorful hair and tattoos and whatnot, are all making a sort of exaggerated cry for freedom of expression. The 1980s was like a firework of over-the-top expression in defiance of the beige corporate culture. Surviving in this world feels like we all must conform to one mindset of mindless positivity and effectiveness. We do not scream in the office. We do not cry in the office. We do not move in the office. We certainly do not talk about death in the office. But we listen to music on the way to and from the office. And then we drink some wine in our candlelit bath on a Thursday night. And maybe if you're a poser, you do a sip and paint with your friends 
because you're too afraid of what will come from the stroke of your paintbrush when you're alone with a bottle of wine. Many of us fear shadow, but there is another way to interpret its ghostly presence. An English philosopher named Edmund Burke, who lived until 1797, once said, Poetry is the art of substantiating shadows and of lending existence to nothing. Acknowledging shadow is how we see in three dimensions and interpret our experiences in more than three dimensions. Allow every shadow and shape and person and plant to show you there are many ways of being. The way you express yourself is more than the colors you wear and the flag you fly. Do what feels natural to you. Attend to whatever catches your attention, like the Peregrini who worshiped God simply by attending to light bouncing off the water. Do not fear the shadows or reflections or light when they play with your world a bit. One of my grandfathers is a painter with the mind of a true artist. His dialogue begins blurry like a shadow or like the first brushstrokes on canvas, but then if you stick around, you'll begin to understand how his side tangents define the main picture. And he paints reflections and shadows among humans and natural landscapes. So his work has subliminally influenced my way of understanding how particles form into tangible matter the way ideas can. And these shadows and reflections of my relatives and me has given me glimpses of my full, tangible identity. Robert McFarland's book, The Wild Places, also mentions an ancient Chinese artistic tradition called Shan Shui, which translates to rivers and mountains, that originated in the 5th century BC and lasted for 2,000 years in the culture. Similar to the Peregrini, these people who chose exile to seek enlightenment wrote particularly about the ever-evolving qualities of nature described as Ziran, which translates to self-ablazeness or self-thusness or wildness. And these wandering artists observed and wrote about how shadows and light bounced through bamboo forests. One of these practitioners, Li Po, drowned trying to embrace the reflection of the moon on the river. And I'm so sorry, you might be wondering how goth prom went. Well, right when I decided to skip the pleather and go for a look that resembled Giselle, the plans for goth prom were canceled. I would have known too much for my own good anyway. But that same weekend, I did play the role of a ghost sister in a short film. My character came back to comfort my living sister experiencing existential thoughts before her art exhibition. The synchronicity of it all. Have a lovely, lovely month, my friends. Howl at the moon or something. Listen to Ethel Kane or something. Peace.